Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Well, hey, y'all. My name is Jameis, and uh, I, <laughs> I will warn you, this, I, I was thinking about it. Yeah, so this is the longest I've gone without preaching in 22 years. Uh, and so I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you may want to go ahead and back up that reservation at the Cracker Barrel. And uh, we don't want them biscuits getting cold. Uh, on behalf of Annie and I and our family, we just want to say thank you so much for your love and grace and prayers for us uh, while we were gone this past summer. Um, we were able to visit some amazing churches from California all the way to Virginia and everywhere in between, but each and every time we just wanted to be here with you all. We missed you like RC Cola misses a moon pie. We missed you like country music misses Johnny Cash. We missed you like a squirrel misses his nuts. Uh, we, we wouldn't trade you for any congregation in the world, and I truly mean that. I have two, I think, primary emotions today. Uh, and the first is just gratitude. I, I just want to say, um, I thought about this a lot over the summer. I don't feel like I deserved that time away. There are many people in our church who have worked very hard for a lot longer than I've even been alive. And uh, I, so I just feel unworthy. Um, I don't feel like I'm extra special. I'm just uh, very humbled and very grateful for you. I also want to uh, say thank you to our amazing staff and pastoral team. At Pleasant Valley, we are ble blessed with the most um, incredible leadership team anywhere, and uh, they work their fannies off this summer, each one of them carrying a lot of extra weight. And so I was able to not lose a wink of sleep the whole time, worried about how things were going, because I knew our church was in such good hands with them. Not only, though, do I feel gratitude, but I feel excitement. And since our church is in 17 years ago, I've never been more excited about what God's doing at our church than I am right now. And to symbolize this, many of you were there just a few weeks ago for our historic groundbreaking service for our new worship center, which by the way, I think it's kind of obvious we need that, isn't it? A quick funny story. Uh, we go, you know, we're up on the stage and Jay and myself and Tony and several others go down to, you know, turn the dirt. And uh, I, first I put my hard hat on backwards. Uh, I never worn one of those things, and, and then I take the shovel, and I'm about to, to start digging, and Jay whispers to me, he said, you're holding the shovel backwards, um, and then it struck me, I'd never really shoveled anything before. Uh, they don't teach you that stuff in seminary. They teach us how to pass offering plates, not manual labor techniques, uh, but my favorite part of the night, of course, is when almost 600 of us gathered around holding hands outside the imprint of our new worship center, and we prayed God's blessing and favor upon what he is doing, and that's just a beautiful thing, and I can't wait, and I'm so honored to do it alongside each of you. Well, this morning, we launched a new six-week sermon series entitled Confronting Christianity, inspired by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin's excellent book by the same title. You can pick up her book in our bookstore. For six weeks, we're going to answer six of the most difficult questions from an apologetics perspective facing Christianity. Next Sunday will be a very heavy Sunday. We will address the question, how could a loving God allow so much suffering? 
And so if you know someone that is suffering or you or your family are suffering, please come next Sunday. We'll have a special time of prayer for them. Then on September the 3rd, we're gonna answer the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? And then on the 10th, isn't Christianity homophobic? And then on the 17th, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? And then on the 24th, how can you say there's only one true faith? So that's what's coming. But today, I thought we'd start off with an easy one. Uh, Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Joking about it being an easy one, by the way. Science and Christianity, I heard about this little girl, and she asked her mom how the human race came to be. And so her mom explained how God made Adam and Eve, and they had babies, and they had babies, and now here all of us are. A few days later, the little girl went to her daddy and asked the same question. He said, well, honey, years ago there were monkeys, and little by little, um, over time, monkeys became more like people, and now here we are. So the little girl was very confused. She went to her mom, and she said, mom, you said God created people. Daddy said we came from monkeys. How can that be? Her mama said, oh, honey, that's easy. I told you about my side of the family. Daddy told you about his Has science disproved Christianity? If you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter one, we're just gonna start with a few foundational verses. Genesis one, verses one through three. If you would, read the underlined portion, those first four words with me. Here we go. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Thank you. You can be seated. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you, and we pray and ask that you would open our hearts and minds to behold not just your existence, but your glory and your greatness. So God, I can't as a mere man approve your existence. God, only your spirit can come and help us to see and know and believe. So Father, speak through me. Help us to see the overwhelming evidence all around us that we were created, that you are the creator, that you are real and you love us. Give grace to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In his excellent book, The Reason for God, the late Tim Keller said this, He says, it is common to believe today that there is a war going on between science and religion. So many would have us to believe it's an either or. You can either be scientific and rational or you can be a person of faith or be a Christian, but you can't be both. After all, who, what intelligent educated person would actually believe in a God any more than you believe in the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny, they would say. And so since the late 19th century, there's been a secular agenda, and I could show you historically why. I don't have time for that. There's been a secular agenda to portray this 
conflict and competition between science and Christianity. However, that messaging is both historically and intellectually dishonest. Christianity and science do not compete, they cooperate. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And the more we study the Bible, which is God's word, and the more we study science, the more we see that science does not disprove God, science actually helps explain God. And that, too, is by God's design. So in Christian theology, we believe that God, let's go to seminary class for a minute. God speaks to us in, in two primary categories. The first is what we call special revelation. Special revelation is God's specific words to specific people. The Bible, first and foremost, alongside Jesus Christ, the uh, special, specifically revealed person in existence of God. Now, God tells us everything we need to know in the Bible about how to know Jesus, experience salvation, and glorify God. The Bible is sufficient for that. However, the Bible does not tell us everything about all the things in the world, and it doesn't pretend to. So, for example, the Bible doesn't claim to be a scientific textbook any more than it claims to be a manual for how to repair small engines or to install an electric grid in your house or how to hit a three iron. Right? The Bible is silent on most things and topics that would concern scientists like photosynthesis or uh, protons or Pluto, as one author said. So, God reveals himself and the message of salvation and Jesus in the book of Scripture. But at the same time, secondly, God also reveals himself in the book of nature. So God speaks through special revelation, the Bible and Jesus, but he also speaks through nature, through creation, what we call general revelation. So here's how Grudem defines general revelation. It is the knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law that comes through creation to all of humanity. In other words, even if you've never had access to a Bible, if you've never been to church or a Sunday school class, you still have all the evidence that you need to know there's a God. All you got to do is walk outside and look up. That is the general revelation of God. It's the book of nature authored by God himself. That's why the psalmist says in chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Let me give you just a few examples. This summer, we went out to Yosemite National Park in California. Many of you have been there. If you've not, go do it. Unbelievable. You won't leave Yosemite and be an atheist. When you see the vastness and the energy of those waterfalls, it screams of the power of God and a creator. We went to Zion uh, National Park, Josh referenced earlier. Breathtaking. you got to go. And when you see the amazing red rock structure, you see something of the righteousness of God, the psalmist says in chapter 36. When we study mathematics and physics, we see the orderliness and the precision of an all-knowing God. When we study astronomy, 
we see God's masterpiece flung up against the sky. Consider the moon. Alongside the sun you see there. So check this out. And you tell me this is chance or uh, random. The moon is exactly one four hundredth the size of the sun. But it just so happens the moon is also exactly one four hundredth the distance from the earth that the sun is. Resulting, therefore, in the moon and the sun being the same size in the sky, a phenomenon not shared by any other known planet-moon combination. So what is the mathematic probability that the sun and the moon would appear to be the same size in the sky if they are simply the result of random chance and not the beautiful, breathtaking design of an amazing, creative God, no wonder after returning from a flight around the moon on Apollo 8, astronaut Frank Borman, he was interviewed by uh, the press, and many of them were very skeptic, uh, skeptical of what he had seen. And so when asked in a very mocking way, uh, Borman, did, did you see God in outer space? He replied, and I quote, no, I did not see God, but I saw his evidence. You see, God's fingerprints are all over everything. God's signature is on every single cell. So when we study anatomy and physiology and neurology and botany and zoology, then we see something of the creativity of God, that God has a mind. It's not random chance. It's structured and orderly. It's creative. I think in Genesis 1 and 2, one of God's favorite things to do must have been to create animals. I mean, think about it. God can make them look and act however he wants. And when you look at the creative design behind animals, how can you remain an atheist? Let me just give you a few examples of my favorites. First, the magnificent Frajati bird. Check that dude out. And scientists show through video how this big red thing is what attracts the mates. It's interesting to be attracted to that. Next, you have the, the Garanook. Check this dude out. Look at that good posture that he has. Isn't that beautiful? Next, we got the Philippine eagle. Check out the hairdo. Next, we have the mantis shrimp. Look at the intricacy and the, the beauty. I mean, the color. It's unbelievable. Next, I love the proboscis monkey. I know we shouldn't make fun, you know, but man, that nose is just like talking about getting picked on. And my favorite, though, is the yai. Check this dude out. I mean, that dude has been smoking something. That is like a, I don't even know. But it's just like, when, when you look at these animals, how can you not believe in a creative designer? You study agriculture, and you see something in the life-giving and life-growing uh, nature of God. You study, this is one of my favorites, and we could have weeks and weeks to unpack this scientifically, but you study the complexity of the cells inside of our bodies, and you see they are far more advanced than any computer programming system ever made by man. 
fact, world-famous atheist and evolutionist Richard Dawkins, one of the most violent uh, antagonists against Christianity, Dawkins said, and I quote, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. You see, so even the most hostile atheist scientists say, man, I mean, it sure looks like there's a creator behind those cells. It's inside every little cell are highly complex motors. Some of them have rotary engines, rotors, stators, drift shafts, U-joints, bushings, bearings. Let me just show you one quick example, like a minute, 20 second of a video of the bacterial flagellum. Check this out. Look, you, you see a highly complex motor, okay, or you're, you're going out to mow and you got your engine on your lawnmower, and the way it works, you're like, well, clearly there was an engineer behind this. I mean, my lawnmower didn't just assemble itself to, to work so complexly, because in the same way, when we look at the human body and the cells inside of us, it's so obvious there's an engineering mind behind it. In fact, even Bill Gates has been skeptical in various ways of faith over the years. Gates said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. So when we dig into molecular and cell biology, it screams of the design of an intelligent God. God's signature is on every cell in your body. So scientific study does not push God away. It helps prove he's real. Cambridge professor of experimental physics, Russell Calburn, writes, and I quote, he said, understanding more of science doesn't make God smaller. It allows us to see his creative activity in more detail. So atheism is inexcusable based alone upon God's general revelation through creation and the sciences. Let me show you this from Scripture. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes through the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, For what can be known about 
God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, God's revealed himself clearly. For God's invisible attributes, in verse 20, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And by that, he means without excuse to not believe in God. So from the ability of the naked eye to behold a a sunrise on a beautiful summer morning, all the way to the Hubble telescope's power to see 10 billion light years away, we have everything in creation. We need to know that there is a God and he is real. So Paul says in Romans 1, we know in our heads intellectually there is a God. It's plain in verse 19. It's clearly perceived in verse 20. No atheist starts out that way. No atheist starts out an atheist. So what happens? Go back to verse number 18. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. You know, those of you in the psychology world, you know what suppression is, right? It's like when you, you have something in your head, but you just refuse to deal with it. You, you suppress that childhood away. You know, you, you refuse to deal with it. You just, you suppress, you push it down. So, so God says these people see clear evidence for God. It's undeniable in verse 19 and 20 when they look at creation. But then in verse 21 and 22, for though they knew God, They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Notice it's a process. Their thinking became worthless. And their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They didn't start off as fools. They saw creation and they knew there was a God. It's undeniable from what we see around us. But in verse 22, they became fools when they, verse 18, suppressed the clear evidence right in front of them. I see there must be a God, but I refuse to believe. The problem for the atheist is not a lack of proof. The problem for the atheist is pride. Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Notice in that verse, the fool says there is no God where? Not in his mind, but in his heart. Because up here in the intellect, in the mind, they know there's a God. The scientific and natural evidence is so crystal clear. Atheism is not an intellectual issue. Atheism is a heart issue. The reason for atheism is not science. The reason for atheism is sin. Because science does not disprove God. It helps explain God. And this is why Christians have had the corner on science from the very beginning of scientific study as we know it. In the 13th century, it was two Christians, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham, who laid the groundwork for the scientific method. And then in the 16th century, it was Francis Bacon, a devout Christian who popularized the scientific method. 
Anybody remember Boyle's Law from physics class back in the day? In the 17th century, it was Robert Boyle, a passionate Christian, who played a foundational role in scientific development. Perhaps the most famous scientist of all time, of course, Albert Einstein. Three pictures of his scientific heroes hung in Einstein's office in his study. All three of them were theists, that is, they believed in God. First, most notably, Isaac Newton. But then the other two, Michael Faraday and James Maxwell, were deeply committed Christians. Charles Darwin, of course, the father of the theory of evolution. And yet Darwin's greatest confidant, the comrade in whom he trusted most in his scientific study was Harvard professor and botanist Asa Gray, who was a deeply committed Christian. The first universities were created for the purpose of training Christians and Christian ministers. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of them and many others were established as overtly Christian institutions of higher learning. You see, Christians have never been afraid of science and academic studies. We've always been the first in line. I mean, pardon my grammar, but we started the dang thing. The scientific method exists because of Christians. So there's this myth floating around by so many atheists that, you know, scientists have largely agreed There's no way a rational, scientific mind could actually believe in God. That is nonsense. The late Harvard scientist and evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould, who was an atheist, by the way, but look at what he said. He said, either, quote, half my colleagues are enormously stupid. He's referring to his Christian colleagues. So either half my colleagues are enormously stupid or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs. And so, and any even honest atheist would admit, you don't have to drop your science when you walk into Sunday school class. Neither, though, do you have to drop your Christianity when you walk into the science lab. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We're not afraid of science because God created science to tell us more about him. So we don't need to try to take back science from the atheist. They've been trying to take it from Christians for hundreds of years. And this is why I have prayed over the last few weeks a lot that in this church, in this congregation, God would raise up young men and young women who would go off to the universities and get PhDs in thermodynamics and astrophysics and molecular biology and organic chemistry and paleontology because future generations that go to college, our kids and their grandkids, they need to know that the sciences don't teach them they're here by chance and that life has no meaning. They need to know they are here because there's a God in heaven who loves them. But why? Why not avoid science? Why pursue it aggressively? Why go study it for the glory of God? It's not just so we can surpass the atheist intellectually. God created an unbelievably mysterious and complex universe, and then he gave human beings brilliant minds. So that as we begin to scratch the surface in our scientific studies, as to the beauty and wonder of the universe, we would then in all give glory to the great God who created it.
God created science so that we could worship him and know him. Because if the Milky Way galaxy is so mind-blowing and glorious, how much more mind-blowing and glorious is the God who created the Milky Way galaxy out of nothing? God didn't give us empirical methodologies and Hubble uh, telescopes to simply satisfy our intellectual curiosities about the vastness of the universe. Listen, God gave us science to blow us away with wonder and awe so that when we worship the mastermind behind it all. Scientific knowledge should never puff us up with pride. It should bring us to our knees in the presence of the Creator because without Him, we don't exist. This is why the psalmist said in chapter 8, verse 1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, that is, God, when I look at science, God, when I study calculus, in chemistry, and biology, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And then in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Friends, if we walk outside, look at the sun in the sky, and choose to be an atheist. That's not on science. That's on us. In preparing for this message, I have been consumed and fascinated by so many scientific discoveries, even over the past handful of decades, that are pointing more and more to the existence of God. And so what you see is, is Darwinism, as we originally knew it, is failing on all kinds of levels. And the leading Darwinists and evolutionists are saying, you know what, this, this isn't working. So this is why a decade plus ago, you had what was called a new atheism. Because the old atheism wasn't working scientifically. And now the new atheism isn't working either. The more we are advanced in our scientific studies, the more atheists are saying man, I'm not ready to call it a God, but it sure looks like an intelligent design. This is happening more and more. So I wish I could show you all of these things. I don't have time. Let me just quickly show you one or two. So a couple scientific developments that are affirming our belief in God more and more. And the first is simply the discovery that the universe has a beginning, this is part of what's called the cosmological argument for those of you that enjoy uh, big words. So here's the, here's the short of it. For a long time in scientific study, many scientists believed the universe had always existed. That is, the universe had no beginning, so it was believed. But increasing scientific studies have largely dismissed this notion altogether, and now the majority of scientists, even non-Christian scientists, agree and acknowledge the universe did, in fact, have a definitive beginning. This is a devastating blow to atheists. In fact, the famous atheist and opponent of Christianity, Stephen Hawking, wrote, and I quote, he said, many people do not like the idea that time has a beginning, probably because it smacks of divine intervention. And so 
if the universe had a beginning, and we know scientifically now it did, then there must have been a first cause. Something gave it its beginning. But guess what? Scientists have no rational or convincing explanation for how or what that first cause might be. But we know that first cause has a name, and his name is God. Enters the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's your first cause. Science doesn't disprove God. It helps explain God. And what's amazing is in the last hundred years, science has confirmed what Scripture declared more than 3,000 years ago. Even the layout in Genesis 1-1, brilliant scientists say when you look at Genesis 1 and what came first and what came second, it's perfectly consistent with astrophysics and what we're learning in astronomy today. For example, that light came first and then matter. All scientists agree upon that. The Bible says in verse 3, God created light, then came everything else. You see, science is just catching up with what Christians have known all along from God's Word. But my favorite scientific development, uh, pointing to the existence of God, is found in what's called the teleological argument or the argument from design. Here's the short of it. When you look at our world, you see a design that is consistent with there being a designer. Consider Mount Rushmore. All right, how did that get there? What would any rational person say? Philosopher Norman Geisler writes this. He says, there may be some theoretical chance that wind and rain erosion could produce the faces of four presidents on the side of a mountain. But it is still far more reasonable to assume that an intelligent sculptor created Mount Rushmore. Duh. All right, so when we see a beautiful sculpture, we know there was an artist behind it. When you see a perfectly built engine, you know there was an engineer. And the same is true with the universe. When we see the universe work so perfectly with all of its complexities, it would be insanity to not conclude there's a designer behind that design. God's fingerprints are all over everything. A knockout punch scientific argument for the existence of God is what's called the fine-tuning of the universe. You could get lost in studying this. It's so amazing. The late famous atheist Christopher Hitchens said this is the most compelling argument for the existence of God. Now, check this out. It is all but a mathematic impossibility that human life exists. Astrophysicists have proven that not just human life, but any kind of life at all would not be possible if the conditions of the universe were to vary even slightly. The universe is precisely fine-tuned for the existence of life. And where there is fine-tuning, logically, there must be a fine-tuner. As one author wrote, if I found an aquarium in your house, and in that aquarium there was water and plants and food, 
in just the combination required to keep goldfish happy, I would reasonably conclude that someone put it there because they wanted goldfish, not that it occurred by accident. So it is with the universe. Modern physics recognizes a set of universal constants that must all be precisely as they are in order for life to exist. We're talking temperatures and pressures and ratios and all these things. The tiniest, most minuscule change to one of those constants means we would all cease to exist just like that. And yet, here's what's amazing. The British mathematician Roger Penrose calculated the probability of all of these conditions being met perfectly as they are so that we can exist is one divided by 10 raised to the 10th power raised again to the 123rd power. That number is as close to zero as anyone has ever calculated or imagined. In other words, the probability that we could exist is much, much smaller then your chances of winning the Powerball jackpot, not one time, not two times, not a million times, not 10 million times, but for you to win the, the, the um, Powerball for more days than the universe has been in existence. But here we are. Here we are. Because someone wanted us here, and his name is God. We are not here by chance or coincidence. It takes far more faith not to believe in God than it does to believe in God. We are here by the design of a creator who loved us and knit us together in our mother's womb. And yet this creator did not make us and just turn around and walk away, but this creator even though we rebelled against him and what the Bible calls sin, he came down low in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on the cross for all of our rebellion and all of our pride and all of our atheism and agnosticism and skepticism. Christ died for us. And now the psalmist says in Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Scientists have discovered that stars are as far as 28 billion light years away from planet earth. And yet that is how far the blood of Jesus has washed away your sins if you believe in Jesus. The only thing bigger than the universe is the grace and love of Jesus for sinners. He is so big and so far away and so glorious and so transcendent and so mind-blowing, but he's so close in Jesus and he loves you. What would keep you from giving your whole life to him. The burden of proof is not on the Christian. The burden of proof is on the non-believer. You have all the evidence that you need. And if you don't believe in the sun and the moons and the scars and DNA and all that stuff, look to a man named Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead. What more do you need? Let's bow our heads and pray. I have to ask our... Uh, music team to come forward and our ministry team as we do at the conclusion of every message. 
We want to provide space for prayer. You're here this morning as something you've heard struck a chord with you. Maybe you've, you've never truly surrendered your life to Jesus and today you feel this, you can't quite put your finger on her, but something inside of you is saying, yes, this is true, this is right. God is real. Jesus is real. I need him. If that is you, you can slide out of your seat starting right now up here to the front. There's men and women wearing lanyards and also by the, the back doors out here. Just take them by the hand and they would love to step with you out of this room or right in here and pray with you and talk with you. I'll be down here at the front. You can do the same with me. Or maybe you just have something else going on in your life totally unrelated to the sermon. You're just struggling. You need prayer. You got a test coming up this week in school, kids, or you got a doctor's appointment or... There's just something going on in your personal life and you'd like prayer. Starting now and all throughout the rest of this service, you can come forward. We'd love to do that. Father, we thank you for your creation. Father, thank you that you have spoken through your word. Thank you that you have spoken through all that we see. God, help us believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.